G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm your host, Tanya Chapman, nerdy speckhead and bookworm, and I'm here to tell you about interesting legal cases. The case we're looking at today is the case of Manning v. Matson 2015, which is a New South Wales Supreme Court case. And it's a case that involves an adult daughter making a claim for greater provision from the estate of her deceased mother. Without any further delay, let's jump into it. Joan Matson died in April 2013. Her husband William had died four years earlier. She had two children. Her son Wayne Matson, who was about 61 years old when his mother died, and her daughter Sharon Menning, who was about 57 years old when Joan died. Joan's will made a gift to her daughter, but by the time of Joan's death, she owned very little. There was a small amount of money, but otherwise there was nothing in the estate. The main reason that there was almost nothing in the estate was because four years earlier, in 2009, Joan had owned her home at Carey Bay, but she then transferred an estate in remainder to the property to her son Wayne, and retained only a life interest in the property. A life interest, or a life estate, gave Joan the right to live in the house for the rest of her life, or to rent it out if she wanted to and receive the rent. But she couldn't sell or mortgage the house. Also, any rights she had in the house terminated on her death. On Joan's death, the remainder person takes possession. The remainder person in this case was her son Wayne and his wife Maureen. Having done the transfer of an estate in remainder to her son, She now could no longer get the property back or leave it in her will to someone else. It was no longer technically her property. She only had the right to live there for the rest of her life and then on her death, the property belonged to Wayne and his wife. Sharon didn't get any piece of the pie and after her mother's death, she started legal proceedings to try to get a share. To understand why Joan would transfer the property in such a way, And to assess Sharon's claim to her mother's estate, the court needed to look into the family background. Sharon and Wayne had different accounts of their upbringing, so I'll give you the account that the court found most likely. The Matson family grew up in Kingscliff, New South Wales. Joan the mother, William the father, and the two children, Sharon and Wayne. Sharon said that up until the age of 16, she had a close and loving relationship with her mother, but then she became pregnant, and her parents decided to move away from their small community to avoid people knowing that Sharon, at the age of 16, was pregnant and unmarried. The family moved to Sydney. Throughout her pregnancy, Sharon said that her mother made her feel like she was no longer part of the family and would only talk to her indirectly through Sharon's father. Wayne, in a way, denied this, but the court found that at the time, Wayne was being the older brother, not living at home anymore, and so Sharon was more likely to know what was going on inside the home. Sharon gave birth to a daughter, Jodie. Joan insisted that the baby be put up for adoption, and Sharon gave her consent. After the birth, Sharon travelled overseas for several years. When she returned to Australia, she lived with her parents for almost a year. She was able to have a close relationship with her father, 
but her relationship with her mother remained difficult. When Sharon indicated that she was going to move out, Joan made it clear that she wanted her daughter out as soon as possible. After moving out, Sharon said that she tried calling her mother each week, but her mother would not talk to her. Their relationship only improved a little over a year later when Sharon married her first husband, Ian. Sharon and Ian had three children together over the next ten years. Throughout that time, Joan's relationship with her mother remained brittle, but they did exchange birthday and Mother's Day presents. Law reforms in the 1990s meant that birth parents and adopted children could contact each other for the first time. Sharon found her daughter Jodie in 1991, and it seemed to help her relationship with her own mother a little. Joan developed a close relationship with Jodie and with Jodie's children in the later years. Sharon's strained relationship with her mother was in stark contrast to Joan's relationship with her son. Joan and William had moved to Kerry Bay and built a three-bedroom cabin. They had also built a granny flat at the back of the house, where Wayne and his wife Maureen lived. The granny flat wasn't a small, detached house. It was really two separate houses within the same building that had separate entrances. Sharon said that at the time her father said to her, quote, Even though I am building a granny flat for your brother, you will get a third of the house when I and your mother die. End quote. When Wayne and Maureen moved in, they paid for substantial improvements around $105,000 worth, and also paid additional wages to William for his work on the property. Obviously, living right next door, Wayne was able to have a closer relationship with his parents. They didn't see Sharon or her family as often as they lived in Sydney. In 2004, Sharon divorced from Ian and four years later married Wayne Manning. The next year, in 2009, the father, William, died. After William's death, Sharon and her mother became closer. In the last few years of Joan's life, she had more contact with her daughter and her daughter's children. It was also in 2009 that the relevant property transaction happened. When William died on the 11th of May 2009, Joan became the owner of the Kerry Bay property. She felt that, because of the financial contributions Wayne and his wife had made to the property, that they were entitled to a half share. Around June, Joan saw a Centrelink publication about granny flats and the benefits of creating a life estate to protect pension entitlements. So Centrelink being the government organisation for social security benefits and pension benefits had printed a brochure about granny flats. Granny flats have many different meanings but for Centrelink purposes granny flats is where the older person normally transfers their house to the child for no money, just the promise that they can live there for the rest of their life, or they pay their child or give their child money for the child to buy a property in which the older person is going to live for the rest of their life. Either way, they are giving away a huge investment, a large amount of money or a house in exchange only for the promise to live in a property. The reason that is so important for Centrelink purposes is because in order to be entitled to the pension, there is a gifting rule where you can only gift $10,000 a year 
or $30,000 over five years, and anything above that may start to affect your pension entitlements. And normally, if you gave away a house or the value of a house, you would most likely lose your pension entirely. But if it fulfilled the Centrelink definition of a granny flat, then it was exempt and it didn't affect your pension. It was this brochure from Centrelink that got Joan thinking about the fact that the house was in her sole name and how she could protect it. She got some legal advice about creating a life estate for herself and transferring an estate in remainder to Wayne and Maureen. She engaged a solicitor, Mr McDougall, to prepare the transfer and to record the transaction in a deed, which was signed by all of the parties on the 24th of July 2009. The solicitor had advised Joan to also get financial advice, but she chose not to. The deed stated that, quote, Wayne and Maureen have made significant contributions of a direct and indirect financial nature to the extension and improvement of the property, end quote. The deed also stated that at the time of the deed, the property was worth about $500,000 and the parties agreed that Wayne and Maureen had contributed about $250,000 to the property. Instead of transferring one half of the property to Wayne and Maureen now and then having to pay stamp duty, Joan was transferring an estate in remainder for the sum of $1. If Joan died or ceased to live permanently in the property, the life estate would extinguish and Wayne and Maureen would own the property outright. Although the solicitor, Mr McDougall, was acting for Joan and for Wayne and Maureen, he met with Joan alone to warn her that if she signed the deed and later needed to move into aged care, she couldn't legally require Wayne and Maureen to pay her aged care fees. She said to him, quote, I understand that, but I do not want to retain ownership of the property if it means that Centrelink can force me to sell it if I go into a nursing home, end quote. So that's how the life estate came to be created in July 2009. Later in November of that year, Joan did her last will. The will appointed Wayne as the executor and left all of Joan's household furniture and personal items to Wayne. She gave the residue of her estate to be divided one half to Sharon and the other half to Sharon's children. Sharon didn't find out about the property transfer until over two years later. At a family Christmas gathering in 2011, Sharon asked her brother about their mother's will, and Wayne said something like, The house has been left to me and Maureen, because Maureen said you would throw us out in the street. Joan said something like, I wanted to sign the house over to Wayne because he helps me pay the bills and will look after me financially, end quote. Sharon was angry about this and there was a heated argument with her brother, each of them throwing accusations at each other. The court decided not to get bogged down in the nitty-gritty of exactly what they said to each other or what they said about this fight. I will say, though, that, I mean, if you think about it, this was not the ideal time to find out that your mum had transferred her house, basically her principal asset, to your brother. I'm sure there's more than a little jealousy being sparked, as well as resentment that they kept it from you. Um, That's just how I would feel. Joan died in April 2013. 
Her estate comprised of a bank deposit of $42,000, a car worth about $20,000, and personal effects worth about $2,000, all up giving the estate a value of about $65,000. Wayne's estimated legal costs for this hearing were about $59,000, meaning that once his legal costs were paid from the estate, there would be no money remaining in the estate. Sharon's own legal costs were estimated to be $66,000. The court case. Sharon made a family provision claim, which, as you may know, is an application to receive more provision from the estate. And the application isn't just a hands out, I want more. It has to be on the basis that adequate provision hasn't been made for her proper maintenance, education and advancement in life. As a biological daughter, Sharon was eligible to make an application for provision and she did so before the deadline, which was within one year from the date of death. Now, you may be wondering why Sharon would make this application when we've already said that there was nothing left in the estate. Well, Sharon was also making an application for notional estate. In New South Wales, we have this thing called notional estate. It includes property or assets that were distributed before the person died. The court can rule that assets are notional estate and make them available in order to give further provision to an eligible and successful applicant. Sharon was applying to have the Kerry Bay property deemed to be notional estate, to bring it back into the estate so that she could get a share of it. To be deemed notional estate, the transaction must have taken effect in the three years before Joan died and was entered into with the intention of limiting the provision made to Sharon. It doesn't have to be the sole reason for the transaction. It can be only one of the many reasons that Joan did the transfer. Or... The transaction took effect in the year before Joan died, and at the time, Joan had a moral obligation to provide for Sharon that was more important than her obligation to transfer the property. Or, the transaction took effect after Joan died. If it can be shown that the transfer of the house fell within one of those categories, and that Sharon is entitled to a greater share of the estate, then the court could order that the house is notional estate, and give Sharon a share. The first question the court must ask is, was the provision made for Sharon inadequate for her proper maintenance, education and advancement in life? To answer the question, the court must consider all the circumstances, including Sharon's financial position, the size and nature of Joan's estate, the relationship between Sharon and Joan, and Joan's relationship with other relatives, including her son and daughter-in-law. Let's look at Sharon's financial position first. Sharon and her husband owned a home at Balcombe Hills in Sydney where they lived. They also owned a property in Penhurst in Sydney that had a mortgage of about $420,000. The Penhurst property was rented out and the rental income covered the mortgage payments. Sharon had about $2,000 in a sole bank account, and she and her husband had $52,000 in a joint account, which was mainly an inheritance that her husband had received. 
Sharon's husband had superannuation of about 54000 Sharon was working as a casual teacher's aide and her husband worked as a courier driver. Their joint income barely covered their expenses. The court then looked at Sharon's needs. At the time of hearing, Sharon was 59 years old. She had had cervical cancer and as a result had a hysterectomy. She would need further medical procedures to eliminate the threat of ovarian cancer. She had also been hospitalised many times for asthma. Sharon's husband also had some serious health issues and there was a concern he wouldn't be able to continue to work for much longer. He had depression, anxiety, high blood pressure, sleep apnea and diabetes. Sharon's position needed to be compared to the position of Wayne and Maureen. At the time of the trial, Wayne was 63 years old and his wife Maureen was 76 years old. They had lived in the property at Carey Bay for over 30 years. Wayne was retired and receiving a superannuation pension. Maureen was not expected to be able to earn an income at any time in the future. As well as now being the owners of the Carey Bay property, they had about $15,000 in bank accounts. Health-wise, Wayne had diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol and a hiatus hernia. Maureen also had health problems, including impaired vision and mobility, Paget's disease, Bowen's disease and arthritis. The provision that was made for Sharon in the will was that she would get half of the estate and her children would get half of the estate and Wayne would get the household personal belongings and furniture which were valued at $2,000. If the other $63,000 in the estate which came from the bank account and the car had stayed in the estate then that would have left Sharon with an inheritance of about $31,000. But as I mentioned before, because of these legal proceedings and the cost of the legal proceedings coming out of the estate, there was now no money in the estate for Sharon to get anything. The court stated that deciding whether to make a provision for Sharon from her mother's estate was difficult. Sharon had substantial health challenges and was in need of capital. However, any provision for her would place a financial burden on her brother Wayne and would most likely result in Wayne and Maureen losing their home. The court said that it would be prepared to make an order for Sharon to receive $75,000 from the estate. But again, there was nothing in the estate to pay this amount or the costs of the legal fees that had been incurred. That could only be done if the court made a notional estate order. So that was the next item of business. Could the Kerry Bay property be deemed as notional estate? It's not just any property transfer you do in the three years before your death that could potentially be deemed to be notional estate. If you did a transaction and you got full value for it, then that transaction is safe. This is only transactions where you didn't get the full value. If within three years of her death, Joan had sold her house for the full value, the house couldn't be deemed as notional estate. Joan had acknowledged that half the property was rightfully Wayne and Maureen's because of the financial contributions they had made. So they needed to determine whether Joan had received full value in exchange for the remaining half share in the house. There is actuarial... Actuarial? No, actuarial. 
There are actuarial calculations that determine the value of a life estate based on the life expectancy of the tenant. So basically they look at Jones' age and they determine how much would the right to reside in the rest of the house be worth based on her life expectancy. Both Wayne and Sharon got their own experts to give a value. Sharon's expert valued Jones' life interest at between 102 and 143,000. Wayne's expert valued Jones' life interest at 118,000, and the court split the difference and used the value of 120,000. By giving up her half share in the property, Joan gave away $250,000, but only received a life interest that the court has found worth $120,000. Therefore, she did not get full value, and this has made it a relevant property transaction for notional estate purposes. The next hurdle is those requirements I mentioned earlier. Whether the transfer took effect in the three years before Joan died and was entered into with the intention of limiting the provision to be made to Sharon, or the transaction took effect in the year before Joan died and at a time when Joan had a moral obligation to provide for Sharon, or the transaction took effect after Joan died. Wayne submitted that the property couldn't be notional estate because the transfer happened in July 2009, which was more than three years before Joan died. He says that the relevant property transaction occurred when the transfer was registered in 2009 and Joan became an owner of a life estate and he and his wife became the owners of an estate in remainder. That became their legal ownership as of the registration in 2009. Sharon, on the other hand, contested that the relevant property transaction happened at Joan's death. On Joan's death, the life estate was extinguished. Wayne would have to have lodged another form with the lands office to have the life estate removed from the title of the property and to have his estate in remainder changed into the usual form of ownership to the property. Wayne argued that this later step was not a separate transaction, that they were part of the same process. He referred to the Succession Act, which states that a relevant property transaction is taken to be entered into and take effect when the contract is entered into. Well, the deed was signed by the parties and the estate, the estate in remainder was created in 2009. I'm going to pause here and give you a minute to think about which argument you find more persuasive. Are you falling down on Sharon's side that the transfer took place at Joan's death? Or are you feeling more persuaded by Wayne that the transfer happened with the registrations in 2009? I'm going to give you a little second to think about it. And now the court's decision. The court held that the relevant transaction happened in July 2009, when the transfer was done and the deed entered into. Because a transaction is only entered into if a person does an act, or fails to do an act, which results in property being held by another person. Justice Slattery stated that executing the 2009 deed was certainly an act, but he was doubtful that Joan dying or not continuing to live 
could sensibly be seen as an act. But Sharon's claim had also failed for another reason. If the transaction took effect within three years of the date of death, you still need to show that the transaction was entered into with the intention of preventing provision being made for her. Wayne submitted that when the life estate was created, Joan did not have any intention of depriving Sharon from receiving it. The evidence of Mr McDougall, the solicitor who helped with the transaction, was that the purpose was to preserve Joan's pension and to prevent the house having to be sold if Joan moved into aged care. The court found that Joan did not do the transfer to cut Sharon out. The outcome. I've kind of already given it away, but the winner was Wayne and Maureen. The house could not be notional estate because the transaction was more than three years old and was not entered into with the intention to prevent Sharon from receiving some of the estate. Because the house could not be deemed to be notional estate, it could not be brought back into the estate. And after payment of legal fees, the value of the estate would be nothing. So the court was also unable to order further provision to be made for Sharon. There were other arguments made in case the house was found to be notional estate. There's no need for us to go into all of them here, but I will mention one. Sharon had argued that failing to set aside the 2009 deed was a failure to act, and that failure to act was a relevant transaction. So, in effect, the Joan... Wayne and Maureen had entered into the deed in 2009. And up until Joan's death, she could have started legal proceedings to have the deed set aside, and she didn't do so. A failure to act can also count as a transaction, so Sharon was arguing that failing to set the deed aside was also a transaction that Joan had done within three years of the date of death. It's a bit convoluted, it's a bit of a confusing mind thought, but it does kind of make sense. The argument didn't work because for Joan to start legal proceedings to have the deed set aside, she would have to have a legal case to have the deed set aside. And there was not enough evidence to show that she would have had that case or that she would have been successful. Of all the things we've covered so far, that might have been the most confusing. Uh, So let's wrap things up now. Sharon was eligible to make a family provision claim, and if there had been enough money in the estate, the court would have awarded her $75,000. But there wasn't enough in the estate. The court could not order that the Kerry Bay property was notional estate, so it could not be brought into the estate for provision. Therefore, Sharon was unsuccessful. I'd like to talk about costs and... At the risk of being even more technical, I want to tell you the difference between ordinary costs and indemnity costs, because they're different things in legal proceedings. So in legal proceedings, normally costs follow the event, which is a nice saying we have that means the loser pays the winner's legal fees. Instead of saying that, which can be a little bit insulting, we say costs follow the event. Costs paid on an ordinary basis means that the loser usually pays about 65% of the winner's legal costs. However, a person can apply for costs to be paid on an indemnity basis, 
which means that the loser pays pretty much all of the winner's legal costs. To apply for cost to be paid on an indemnity basis, you need to show reason. In this case, Wayne applied for his cost to be paid on an indemnity basis because Sharon had refused two offers of settlement made earlier in the proceedings. And this is something the courts really do encourage. They want parties to try to reach in a settlement long before the matter gets to court because it frees up the court's time, it allows the parties to reach a settlement much earlier, potentially saving themselves some months, if not years, of legal proceedings, and it also saves a lot more in legal fees if it doesn't proceed all the way to court. So if it can be shown that a party has made a reasonable offer to settle much earlier on, and the unsuccessful party didn't accept it, The court may find that they should pay indemnity costs almost like a punishment for not having accepted that offer. The first offer Wayne made was on the 23rd of December 2013 and Wayne offered that he would pay his own legal costs of the proceedings if Sharon would drop the matter. That was all. He wasn't offering to give her anything from the estate just not to pursue her for his legal costs. The second offer was made about five months later in May 2014, and this was still a year and a half before the trial. This offer was to pay Sharon $20,000 plus another $20,000 towards her legal fees if she dropped the matter. Sharon said that she rejected both offers and that it was not unreasonable for her to do so. Given that she ended up with nothing, In hindsight, it might not look reasonable to have refused the second offer, but what Sharon argued was that there were difficult points of law being argued, which made it uncertain what the court would decide, that neither of the offers were a genuine offer of compromise, and that given the evidence available to her at the time of the offers, it was not unreasonable for her to decline them. In relation to the first offer made in December 2013, the court agreed that it was made before a lot of evidence was available, so it would have been difficult for Sharon to evaluate the strengths of Wayne's case. So it was not unreasonable for her to reject that first offer. And let's remember that first offer didn't actually offer her anything, it just said that he wouldn't try to get her to pay his legal costs. In relation to the second offer made in May 2014, it was unreasonable for Sharon to have rejected it. The court stated that, yes, it was a difficult point of law, but the point of these offers is to avoid the cost, inconvenience and court time of arguing such points. So it is still better to settle. They also stated that it was a genuine offer of compromise when compared to the results of the proceedings. She would have gotten $40,000, which most likely would have covered her legal fees, instead of getting nothing and now having to pay $66,000 for her own legal fees, as well as Wayne and Maureen's legal fees. And also, not all of the evidence had been filed, but there was enough to paint a picture of Wayne's case for Sharon to decide whether or not to accept the offer. The court ordered that indemnity costs should be paid from the time the second offer was made, from June 2014. So Sharon had to pay about 65% of Wayne's legal fees from the time she started proceedings sometime in 2013 
up until June 2014. And thereafter, she had to pay about 100% of Wayne's legal fees until the legal proceedings ended. Lessons If you thought this was a really complicated case, that was the point. That was one of the reasons I wanted to cover it. I wanted to demonstrate how complex these family provision claim cases can be. This case also may introduce a lot of people to the concept of notional estate, um, which is absolutely relevant for anyone living in New South Wales or with assets in New South Wales, but a lot of people don't know about it, so hopefully I presented it in a way that was understandable, and maybe one day it will be relevant for you. Also, this estate was really interesting for me as an estates lawyer because I do estate planning, I prepare wills, and what was seen in this case was the effectiveness in creation of a life estate to protect the house from a potential family provision claim down the track. And what I mean by that was that Joan had managed to transfer ownership of the house by creating this estate in remainder, surviving for more than three years, and then on her death, her daughter made a claim for more of her her estate, but it failed because the house could not be found to be notional estate. So this was something that I think a lot of estate lawyers found interesting. It may have increased the popularity of the creation of life estates and the creation of estate in remainders, and it is an option out there for people in estate planning and when they're looking at how they structure their assets. So it's another reason why it's good to know. Hopefully all of that wasn't too technical. I really hope you enjoyed it and found something relevant in that case. I'm always happy for any feedback, so drop me a line. Otherwise, I hope you'll join me for our next episode. <music>